Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The day of Lincoln Lennox's lynching, investigators came to look at the swing set where his mother found him at 2 a.m. Cord, North Carolina, at this time of year, was holding the first meetings to prepare to host the 11th annual Soldiers Joy Festival. The Big Community Music Festival held March 31st to April 6th in memory of two Iraq Occupation Army personnel who died together in the same drowning incident in the Ephesus Swamp, two days after they returned home from Iraq. Private First Class Edward Eddie Carter Lane, age 28. Specialist Aida Willerton Claude, age 29. Everyone called her Edie. They'd been friends of Junior Stanley in the time before he had become what he called Proud Home Guard Boy. He and other members of the Proud Boys Club and the Prayer Patriots Club were the chief organizers of the week-long Soldiers' Joy celebrations, their tribute to the two young heroes. Heroes is the word we feel we should use and with confused respect should promote. Who had been told the cause was just and had, like us, been convinced? This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Kevin McAvoy, author of One Kind Favor. Set in a fictional town in North Carolina, we learn of the lynching of a black teenager named Lincoln. The investigation is quickly closed. His death ruled a suicide. But the ghosts of former residents come to town to join the ghosts or presences of those who are already there, and together they interrogate and torment the locals in luminous, sometimes poetic, sometimes angry prose. McAvoy bulldozes over the Trumpist, gun-toting, false religion-spouting, hate-spewing, racist, and bigoted residents, some of whom are also wonderful people of his home state. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for joining me today. It's great to be here with you. So how did you come to write this novel? This uh, novel is my um, eighth book, and I am always underway with the planning for a new book as I end another. I had finished um, uh, all of my work on um, the book At the Gate of All Wonder, and in uh, August of 2014, saw an article uh, from The Guardian uh, by a reporter whose beat is the American South. And this was specifically regarding a lynching in uh, uh, North Carolina that had been covered up. Uh, And it uh, seemed uh, that this article and this incident had its own intersection with what was going on politically in our country. And as a storyteller, 
with his ear to the ground of uh, the place that he lives, North Carolina, with his uh, heart attentive to this nation that he loves, I um, found myself drawn into this story of uh, this place and uh, this particular moment in our culture. Mm. How'd you come up with the title? He, um, blues music is very important to me in my life overall. I never spend a day in which I don't contemplate blues music uh, since I play. I play uh, blues harmonica and um, am always... Uh, every day, uh, every writing day, uh, paying attention to the music of people like Little Walter, Junior Wells, uh, James Cotton, Charlie Musselwhite, uh, and other great blues musicians. And um, often in blues music, I find not just inspiration, but a particular connection between it, its examination of life, uh, and um, its paradoxes, and what I believe the work is unfolding before me. And so um, at the time that um, I was writing the very first parts of this already, it seemed to me that it was um, uh, in its um, uh, tonal range very much like blues music, and especially in regards to blues music being its own paradox. That is often blues music that is examining the most tragic things humanly imaginable um, is quite exuberant. Uh, And um, this is uh, a mystery that uh, gives it part of its force. And uh, so... Part of uh, what a title always does for me is give me a way to be dared. Uh, Do you dare, author, write something that has both this honest sense of tragedy in it and that conveys this counterintuitive, paradoxical exuberance? Uh, And um, so a title is for me not just a name for the book, but um, a reminder of what I hope the qualities of the book are. Mm -hmm. How did you decide to write One Kind Favor in first person plural? And who do you want the reader to think is telling the story? It's a great question. uh, And um, it uh, is an important question in this book. It turns out that all my life, my primary influence has been uh, oral storytelling. I grew up in a great family of oral storytellers, in particular on my father's side, the Irish side of the family, and um, and had the wonder as a very young person of listening to stories that were um, wild and that went every direction all at once, often gin-driven, um, and um, that were both funny terribly sad and um, spellbinding. And um, one of the things that was characteristic of those stories that is characteristic of many stories in the American oral tradition is a first-person plural, a we voice in which a town, a community, a family, a parish speaks for everyone uh, in that town, that parish, that 
community um, and believes that it knows everything there is to know about what happened in the past there, everything there is to know about what is happening now in the present, and everything that will happen um, next. Uh, this is an odd form of omniscience that sometimes is called tribal omniscience because it seems to speak for the tribe to the tribe. And so the reader here is placed in the position of, uh, of having to think and listen like someone who lives in cord, who is listening to someone speaking for cord. And um, this is, this is um, the heart of orality. Uh, we see it in um, great writers like Toni Morrison. We see it in the American tradition in writers like Twain and Washington Irving. Uh, and um, uh, and um, I am I'm very fortunate in that I have vivid, vivid oral memories of uh, great storytelling. Mm. Uh, I thought the actual lynching that you based the story on took place in 2016, but um, you have, you recently, you just said 2014, but I want to know, what do you think the family of the actual lynching victim would have to say if they read this novel? This is an interesting uh, question. Um, the actual lynching did happen in 2014. Um, there is a lot um, known about the family's response to the cover-up because um, there was, after the fact, um, some attempts to report what uh, uh, the mother and the brother of the um, young man who was uh, lynched uh, felt and how they responded to what uh, had happened. Uh, and um, this uh, ultimately involved uh, the Reverend William Barber, who asked for an honest investigation to take place and who advocated for the mother and brother who um, were upset by um, being told that no lynching had occurred, that this was a suicide. Uh, and, um, uh, and for me, as a fiction writer, there is then a, a very long leap from what you learn and know through research to a person who inhabits a fictional place. Um, so there is, for instance, a real place in North Carolina where there is a real beast festival that is one of the events in this novel, but that beast festival does not remotely resemble what um, is portrayed in this book. And, um, and I hope that the family of uh, the young man who was um, another young black person killed only for the color of his skin, um, I hope they will understand that this person here, this fictional character, um, is um, meant to be a figure that uh, represents um, something larger than an individual, uh, and that this town represents something larger, something more like our nation at this moment. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about the federal agents who first come to investigate? This is um, part of 
what is a um, a strange aspect of uh, any town's experience of tragedy is that immediately outsiders are present who interrupt the flow uh, of that community's normal ceremonies and rituals uh, and um, who in some cases stay for a little while, in other cases stay for a longer time. Um, and, uh, and one of the reasons that the early pages of this book um, have this presence of the outsiders is that it is my experience that one way to learn about a town um, is to see how it behaves in the presence of outsiders, um, what it does, uh, how it uh, either changes or um, resists change that can occur when an outside force now uh, is brought to bear on, um, on examining it, on asking questions about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, much of the story takes place in a consignment store that's also a bar. Mm-hmm. Can you describe the place and why you chose to set the story there? It's always good um, as a novelist, in my opinion, to be thinking about world making. That is, um, you your first responsibility in a novel is to create a sense of a world that the reader enters. And, um, and if you do that with uh, a generous spirit, I think that uh, includes the darkest aspects of that place and includes the most uh, luminous and bright and positive aspects of that place, you begin to discover the worlds within that world. And, um, and so in accord, once I had a sense of this community overall, I could begin to think about, and what are the worlds that exist within this community. And one of those um, is the hotel that is in the book called The Hell Tell. And, um, and one of those is this consignment bar called uh, Stanley's Acker's Stanley's. And it turns out that um, that consignment bar felt particularly rich to me as a place where in this very small community of approximately 2,000 people, um, everyone would know this place and everyone would at one time or another pass through it. And it would be a place that endures, that stays when other things collapse in a town like this. Huh. Wow. I understand there's a long history of incorporating ghosts and stories from your part of the world, the American South. And we meet several characters who've been dead for varying amounts of time. So, <laughs> yes. so my question is, why don't we ever get to hear from Lincoln, the lynching victim? Well, um, this is a, a, a question that is, to me, quite important. That is that um, if the book is portraying where we are uh, as a country right now, that if the reader inhabiting this small town called Cord and this consignment bar called Stanley's Acker, Stanley's, uh, begins to feel that she or he really is in um, a, a, a place that is the distillation of this particular moment in 21st century American life. 
one of the characteristics of 21st century American life is how many black people have been erased, how many people like Lincoln um, do not exist in their communities because they were murdered, they were killed, they were shot. Um, and um, that means that they are both absent and powerfully present in our lives. Uh, and we feel this more than ever um, when um, we hear people at this particular moment say, um, say his name, say her name, um, the annihilated <coughs> black person. Um, that is someone saying they are absent and feeling the aching absence of that person. Um, and at the same time, feeling how present that person is in their hearts and their minds, uh, and how present that person still is in a community that either um, participated in the annihilation of that person um, or remained quiet for it. Mm -hmm. So Lincoln, the lynching victim, he had two best friends. One is a kid his age and the other is based, on, I read, after I read the book, on the late writer Kathy Acker, who was an interesting person in real life and is a fascinating character. Um, she, uh, what can you tell us about these two friends? Well, Woolman is uh, the high school best friend of uh, Lincoln, uh, and is a um, is a young man who whose life was already uncertain about what comes next, um, and uh, has been made that much more uncertain by the sudden death of his friend. Uh, he was in. A, a triangle relationship with uh, his best friend and this character named Acker. And Acker is meant to be a conscious echo of the real person, Kathy Acker, now dead many years, um, but one of my true literary heroes, a, uh, a writer of tremendous boldness and courage, and a writer whose uh, energies uh, resulted in works that were, when they first came out, called punk literature, in part because the energy of them, uh, and to some degree, the um, questionable, almost obscene nature of them, was a kind of a um, dare to uh, the quiet and calm world that, um, that Kathy Acker disrupted in her work. Uh, and I think that um, many of us, if we find ourselves writing a, a, a work, whether it's a novel or a short story um, or a work of, uh, of another kind that is satirical, uh, specifically that is um, uh, that kind of a Swiftian satire that is meant to cut, is meant to draw blood, we need to imagine a writer who is unafraid of doing that. And um, I believe that's how the happy accident of Acker being in this work occurred. An accident, ah. Yeah, it's not a, it was not a conscious uh, choice at all. Um, I, I think it's true, as I said about blues music, that the things you carry 
around with you day in and day out, um, they end up spilling into your work. And um, you either have a choice right away as you're composing of um, censoring them and saying, no, no, not now. No, uh uh-uh. No, I'm not going to allow you. I've got my hands full. (laughs) Or say, come on in. And one of the great things about writing a novel is that everything that wants in can go in. Now, that doesn't mean that in revision you won't uh, remove great chunks, but it does mean that in composing you can cast this very large net and you can um, comfortably um, and at sometimes quite uncomfortably draw in everything that has entered that net. Uh, and so there are always things in my work, there always have been, that are pure accident. So the decision to include these presences, was that an accident? No. No, because um, one of the things that I think is uh, uh, is happening in court that is happening in our country is that more than ever, we have a sense of these presences, these ghosts that are our very old ghosts that go back here in the American South to the Civil War, that go back here in the American South to slaveholding, that um, that are current enough that they involve the killing and cover-up of um, many murders of people of color, um, and um, that we live in a moment in which there are many presences that are with us and that we have the consciousness of that may, in fact, make this another moment that is a moment of ghosts. And it's interesting when you study the ghost story, you realize that um, there are certain moments in, um, uh, in a culture in which a lot of ghost stories are being told and or are um, um, brewing. Um, So, for instance, uh, post-Civil War um, was a period in American literature in which there were hundreds and hundreds of ghost stories. Why is that? It's because so many people had died um, who were uh, still felt to be present in their communities. And so many people had returned in a condition that um, of such damage emotionally and physically that they were like ghosts um, roaming their towns uh, and cities. And, um, and there, are, there are, there are always moments in history in which um, the ghost story arises again uh, it uh, it arose again in Japan post World War. It uh, it has ways of uh, returning to us, depending on the pressures of an historical moment. Mm-hmm. I, um, most of your ghosts' presences are human, but you also have uh, left room for a mockingbird, yes, and and a dog. Exactly. Are, so. <laughs> So what are they trying to say, Webb and uh, Lisbeth? Well, um, uh, 
they are they're they're uh, relatively minor uh, characters, but present in an important way in the work. And thank you for asking about them. Uh, it uh, it is true that um, there are ghosts and ghost figures in traditions that are animals. Uh, in some cases, as in the case of Lisbeth. Um, she is the um, manifestation of a person who actually lived in this town and um, was transformed through the kind of magic that is part of um, this town's heritage uh, into a mockingbird. And um, Webb is a creature who um, is a kind of a wise guy uh, fool figure. And often in um, tragedies, there is a figure who is the fool. There is always the fool present in Shakespeare, for instance. Uh, and, um, and it seemed possible in this work for um, the person playing the fool to be um, this particular dog who has some attitude. Mm, yeah, he does. Um, okay, this is a question I really want to know the answer for me personally. What happens to the second set of federal agents that come to the town? Ah, well, you know, that's a really important question that you're asking because, um, you know, when you have a lot of mysteries that have been introduced in a work uh, and, um, and you leave them unanswered, it seems to me you'd better have a good reason for doing that uh, as a storyteller because otherwise you only invite frustration. Uh, so... Um, one could ask, uh, who killed uh, Lincoln? Who, who actually committed that murder? And why is the novel not going to give up the answer to that? Um, and this question of the agents who come and who, um, like the previous agents, do essentially a fake investigation um, what what does happen to them is a, a question that the work leaves unanswered. In the case of uh, Lincoln, um, the justification for us not answering that um, is that the work doesn't want to make that uh, uh, mystery and that violent episode the center, the center of the work. The center of the work is Cord um, dealing with the aftermath of this violence. Uh, and, um, and these agents who um, disappear, we know that they do not make it home and we do not know actually what comes of them, um, is, I think in the book, a kind of a warning. Um, if you keep committing these crimes uh, against others and thinking that it will never uh, return to you, you are mistaken. Um, and one of the great things about ghost stories in uh, all traditions, in particular in the South, is what they leave unanswered. So, for instance, a, a natural ending to a ghost story is uh, works something like this. Let's say that uh, a panther has been um, roaming a town and uh, killing young people. And you uh, get to the point where uh, the panther disappears. And the end of the story is, um, and do you know when it might reappear? And do you know where? And do you feel safe? 
In other words, what a ghost story often does is not end with a resolution, but with a set of questions. Yeah, but I thought since I'm, you know, having a personal conversation with the author, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I there are I had so many questions. It was so fascinating. But one, uh, just a couple more. Has anyone in North Carolina realized that your book makes kind of a mockery of their gun-worshipping values and bigoted ideologies? And have you received any threats or cease and desist letters yet? You know what has happened to me that um, I hoped would be true? Um, People have read it and have said um, it is a really sharp and cutting, and it is every bit as much compassionate and understanding. And I really do believe this about North Carolinans. Um, This state was once upon a time considered the most progressive of all the Southern states. It is now, um, by everyone's reckoning, the most regressive politically and backward state in the American South. And its legislature is infamous for um, the kinds of voter suppression and the kinds of other um, really, truly despicable uh, behaviors that have become a model for other states. That said, this is a state that um, uh, anyone meeting any of the people in the Piedmont where this takes place um, in any other part of this state realize that they are meeting people of depth, capable of compassion and understanding, who have been drawn into a kind of spell of the hate impulse. And um, it has been very satisfying to me to hear from readers who say, um, you know, I really did find those people despicable. And I really did feel a connection to them and compassion for them um, as in the terms of the work, the terms of engagement of the work. Mm. So, so far, wow. um, that has been the response, and I've been very pleased about that. Okay, I hope that keeps up and no threats come your way. <laughs> <laughs> what are you working on next? I um, am writing poems. I've always written poems for over uh, 50 years. I've been uh, writing poems uh, and um, am now um, feeling that my long five decades of apprenticeship as a poet has drawn to the moment where I want to actually write and publish my poems. Uh, and, um, and so the first energies for me every day go to writing the poems. Then, um, because I write every day, six days a week, um, and often finish uh, at a certain point before I'm done with my full session, I am also writing more or less by accident a novella, and um, and I'm keeping very busy. It's uh, it's really quite wonderful to feel how uh, energizing uh, and lucky having this book out is, uh, and um, and I'm uh, well into these next two works. Well, thank you so much, Kevin McAvoy, for sharing your thoughts with me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you about your new novel, and I wish you the best of luck. Kelly, thank you so much. And I want to say thanks to all of you who read and who um, uh, buy 
books and support your local independent bookstore. I really appreciate it. All of us in the writing community do. Thank you again, Galit. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with author Kevin McAvoy about his novel, One Kind Favor. Hope you're all able to lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow, too. Happy reading, everyone.